Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-12, Humayun and the Safavids. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Humayun becomes ruler of the Mughal Empire when his father, Babur, dies in 1531. Using violence and superior naval technology, the Portuguese established trade networks in India. Humayun puts too much trust in his family, some of whom are actively working against him. Humayun defeats Bahadur Shah in Gujarat, but must still deal with Shur Shah Suri in the north. And with that, let's discuss Shur Shah and the Suri dynasty. Shur Shah Suri The 16th century was a tumultuous time in the Indian subcontinent as powerful figures fought for dominance and control. One of the most influential figures of this time was Shur Shah Suri, also known as Shur Khan. Shur Shah Suri was a skilled Afghan warrior who was able to rally his fellow Afghans to his cause and expand his power and dominions in the eastern part of the subcontinent. Known for his military prowess, Shur Shah Suri introduced a standardized coinage system and oversaw the construction of a network of roads and administrative centers in his dominion. But, Shur Shah Suri's most significant accomplishment was his triumphant campaign against the Mughal Emperor Humayun. This campaign ended with the defeat of Humayun and the establishment of the Suri dynasty. Here's how it happened. Having dealt with Bahadur Shah in Gujarat, Humayun turned his attention towards Shur Shah Suri in the north. He took a fleet of ships down the Ganges River and spent six months at a fort in Chunar. Chunar is in the eastern part of the modern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, about 300 miles from the Bangladeshi border. John F. Richards explains this sequence of events in his book, The Mughal Empire. While the Mughals were engaged on the seacoast, an extremely able Afghan nobleman, Shur Khan Sir, had quietly gained control of the military fief of his father in southern Bihar. During the five years consumed by Humayun's campaigns in the south, Shur Khan became the acknowledged leader of the Afghan resistance against the Mughals and a king in all but name. In 1537, Shur Khan invaded Bengal, defeated Mahmud Shah, the ruler of Bengal, and besieged him at Gore, his capital. Fearing Shur Khan's growing power, Humayun marched to the east to relieve the Bengal Sultan. Unfortunately, Humayun's ill-advised attempt to take Chinar Fort rather than pressing on to Gore permitted Shur Khan to capture Gore and take control of Bengal. Mahmud Sultan fled his lost kingdom to seek an insecure refuge with Humayun at Chunar. Now let's discuss this sequence of events in a little bit more detail. When Humayun finally advanced on Bengal, he left his brother Hindal to guard his rear. However, when he reached the strategic city of Gore, he found it abandoned and emptied of its wealth, 
which was a major setback for his campaign. He was hoping to replenish his army at Gore. In addition to the challenges posed by Sher Shah, Humayun also faced betrayal from within his own family. While he was away campaigning in the east, his brothers Hendal and Kamran both tried to seize power for themselves. Hendal was supposed to be watching Humayun's rear flank. Instead, he abandoned his post, returned to Agra, and had the khutbah read in his name, a clear act of rebellion against Humayun. Kamran also left Punjab and headed east, claiming to be coming to Humayun's aid. But it is possible, in fact, it is likely, that he had his own ulterior motives and was trying to grab the throne of Delhi while Humayun was distracted. These actions weakened Humayun's position, making him more vulnerable to attack by Sher Shah Suri. With Hendal gone, Sher Shah Suri was able to swing around Humayun and attack his exposed rear. The two sides faced off at Chansa near Varanasi. Varanasi is a Hindu holy city in Uttar Pradesh, about 425 miles east of Delhi. Humayun arranged his cannons in a defensive formation similar to his father's. However, Sher Shah Suri was familiar with this tactic and, knowing how dangerous it was, he dug in as well. After some diplomatic activity, Sher Shah Suri agreed to recognize Humayun as the Mughal emperor on the condition that Humayun recognize his rule over Bihar and Bengal. Humayun accepted these terms, but he still wanted to put on a show. He worked out a deal with Sher Shah Suri to stage a fake battle where his troops would advance and Sher Shah Suri's forces would pretend to retreat. They went through the motions of this ridiculous scheme, and Humayun retired satisfied, thinking the matter was done. You probably know where this is going. Later that night, Sher Shah Suri launched a surprise attack on the Mughal forces who had let their guard down and left their fortified positions. Humayun's forces were completely routed and he barely escaped himself, fleeing across the Ganges River on an inflated water skin with the help of a water bearer named Nizam. Well, the water bearer Nizam got something out of it. As a show of gratitude, Humayun later allowed Nizam to be king for a day. Humayun loses India. Humayun fled back to Agra with his brothers Hendal and Askari and made a big emotional show about how they had failed him. However, he decided to forgive them as Sher Shah Suri was still a threat and he needed their assistance. With Sher Shah advancing towards Agra, Kamran chose this moment to abandon his brother and return to Lahore, taking his troops with him. Humayun moved against Sher Shah Suri once more, and the two armies met for battle on May 17, 1540 at Kanoj, about 150 miles east of Agra. Sher Shah Suri once again defeated Humayun, 
who again retreated back to Agra with his brothers Hindal and Askari. He remained there just long enough to empty the treasury and then fled to Lahore, the capital of Punjab. Sher Shah Suri continued his westward advance, reaching Delhi in June and declaring himself King of Delhi. This was the beginning of the short-lived Suri dynasty. He then moved west towards Lahore, reaching Sirhind about 130 miles east of Lahore. Humayun sent a desperate message asking Sher Shah Suri to declare Sirhind as the boundary between them, but Sher Shah Suri replied, I have left you Kabul implying that he wanted Humayun to leave India completely. Humayun was at a loss. He knew he couldn't really go to Kabul. Kabul was under the control of his brother Kamran, whom we've seen had no desire to help Humayun. In fact, Kamran had even offered to support Sher Shah Suri in return for Punjab, but Sher Shah Suri had declined the offer. With Kamran in Kabul and Sher Shah Suri's army advancing from the east, Humayun had nowhere to turn. So he and his brothers decided to go their separate ways. Kamran and Askari, who were full blood brothers, retreated to Kabul. Meanwhile, Humayun and his half-brother Hindal fled south to Sindh in modern-day Pakistan. An Emperor with No Empire Humayun turned to one of his vassals, Hussein Umrani, the ruler of Sindh, for help. But Hussein Umrani turned him down. Humayun tried to attack some of the forts in Sindh, but was unsuccessful with that also. This left him in the same position as his father had been, a fugitive roaming around Sindh with dwindling troops and dwindling money. It was during this time that Humayun fell in love with Hamida Bano, the daughter of a Shia scholar named Sheikh Ali Akbar Jamia. Initially, Hamida Bano was not interested in Humayun, which should come as no surprise considering his difficult circumstances. But Humayun persisted, and finally he convinced Hamida to marry him in August 1541. Despite this happy occasion, Humayun's fortunes did not improve. If anything, they got worse. He received an offer of 20,000 Rajput troops from the Raja of Mewar in the modern Indian state of Rajasthan. However, as he got closer, he realized it was a trap. He turned back and retraced his steps through 200 miles of desert, passing through territory controlled by the Raja of Jaisalmer. The Raja of Jaisalmer, unhappy about Humayun's presence, filled all the wells in his path and moved all the grains and people out of the area. As a result, Humayun and his forces were left in a state of desperation and destitution. His wife, Hamida, who was now pregnant, even had to walk through the desert at times because she did not have a horse. After a long and difficult journey, Humayun and his family finally arrived at Umarkot, a city in southeastern Pakistan. 
It was here, on October 15, 1542, that Humayun's wife Hamida Bano gave birth to their son, Akbar. The Rana of Umarkot, Rana Prasad Singh, offered to help Humayun against his former vassal, Shah Hussein, the ruler of Sindh. Shah Hussein countered this by making his own offer to Humayun. He promised to provide Humayun with 2,000 loads of grain and 300 camels. But in exchange, Humayun had to leave Sindh. Humayun accepted Shah Hussein's offer and, in July 1543, he and his family crossed the Indus River, the traditional boundary of Hindustan. This marked the end of Humayun's initial attempt to reclaim his kingdom and seemed to be the end of the Mughal Empire, which was only 14 years old. As Humayun made his way towards Kandahar in Afghanistan, he received word that his brother, Askari, was approaching his position with hostility. Fearing for his safety, Humayun made the difficult decision to leave his newborn son, Akbar, behind in the camp with a small group of defenders. With his wife and a handful of trusted advisors, Humayun slipped out of the camp and fled to safety. Fortunately, the Turks had a tradition of sparing the women and children of their Muslim enemies, and so Akbar was not harmed. He was taken back home by Askari, where he was raised by his wife and a group of caregivers for the next few years. After fleeing Afghanistan, Humayun faced even more hardships. He traveled through snow-covered mountains between Afghanistan and Persia with his small group, forced to eat berries and horse meat to survive. Shah Tamasp and the Safavid Dynasty Shah Tamasp I was a remarkable ruler who left a lasting legacy on the Persian Empire. He was born in 1524 in the city of Tabriz and ascended to the throne at the young age of 10 following the death of his father, Shah Ismail I. Under Tamasp's leadership, the Safavid dynasty reached its peak of power and influence. Shah Tamasp was a patron of the arts and he supported the development of the Persian language. Shah Tamasp also commissioned the construction of many beautiful buildings, including the Royal Mosque in Isfahan, which is considered a masterpiece of Persian architecture. Tamasp was also a brilliant military leader and he expanded the empire through successful campaigns against the Ottoman Turks and later on, the Mughal Empire. His most significant victory came in 1534 when he captured the city of Baghdad, which had long been a center of Sunni Islamic power. His policies played a significant role in the conversion of Iran from a predominantly Sunni to a predominantly Shia country. The Safavid dynasty was founded by Shah Ismail I, that is, Tamasp's father, who was a devout Shia. He and his successors, including Shah Tamasp I, actively promoted the Twelver branch of Shia Islam and worked to spread its influence throughout the empire. 
One way the Safavids accomplished this was by building mosques, madrasas, that is Islamic schools, and other religious institutions throughout the empire. They also established a network of religious scholars and preachers who were trained in Shia theology and doctrine and who helped to spread the teachings of Shia Islam to the broader population. Another tactic the Safavids used was to make Shia Islam the state religion. They passed laws and issued decrees that gave Shia Islam a privileged position in the empire and punished those who refused to convert or oppose the spread of Shia Islam. Despite these efforts, the conversion of Iran to Shia Islam was not without resistance. There were many Sunnis who opposed the Safavids and the spread of Shiaism, and there were several uprisings and rebellions against the dynasty. However, the Safavids were ultimately successful in their efforts, and by the end of their rule, Shia Islam had become the dominant religion in Iran. Humayun and Shah Tamasp Eventually, Humayun arrived at the city of Mashhad in modern northeastern Iran, about 450 miles east of Tehran. To their surprise, they found a welcoming party waiting for them, sent by Shah Tamasp I of the Safavid dynasty. They were provided with warm food and clean beds to rest in. Humayun and his group stayed in Mashhad for 40 days before going to meet the Shah at his summer home in Kosvin. Kosvin is about 70 miles west of Tehran. When Humayun arrived, they celebrated with several days of feasting and festivities. Humayun presented the Shah with the famous Kohinoor diamond and other gifts he had taken with him from Agra's treasury. The Shah appreciated these gifts, but he really wanted Humayun to become a Shia. Humayun already had close Shia ties. His wife, Hamida Banu, was a Shia, as was one of his closest advisors, Bayram Khan. Under pressure from his wife, the Shah, and Bayram Khan, Humayun eventually converted to Shiaism and started wearing Shia-style garments and signing documents declaring his change of faith. This decision upset many of his closest companions, but Shah Tamasp agreed to provide Humayun with military support to take Kandahar from his brother Kamran. However, Humayun would then be required to turn Kandahar over to the Shah, who sent his infant son, Murad, to be placed on the throne. This plot was very similar to the one Babur had done years earlier with Shah Tamas' father, Shah Ismail I. Humayun heads back to Afghanistan. Humayun left Persia with a powerful army of 14,000 soldiers and set out to conquer Kandahar, the key to reclaiming his empire. The journey was not without its challenges, as Humayun took his time, stopping to sightsee along the way. But finally, he reached Kandahar in the late summer of 1545. With the Shah's formidable army at his side, 
Humayun took the city from his brother Askari in early September. However, just as Humayun was celebrating his victory, disaster struck. The Shah's son, the infant Murad, suddenly and mysteriously died, leaving the throne empty. Seizing the opportunity, Humayun declared himself king of Kandahar. It was a risky move, but one that just might pay off as it put Humayun back on the road to reclaiming his empire. And now that he had a base to operate from, a whole bunch of nobles and soldiers were rushing to align themselves with him. Eager to continue expanding, Humayun marched on Kabul. His brother Kamran fled at the sight of Humayun's approaching army, allowing Humayun to take the city in November 1545. Humayun finally reunited with his son Akbar in Kabul, celebrating his victory with a whole bunch of fanfare. But the celebrations were short-lived. Kamran, determined to reclaim his own power, launched a fierce counterattack. The two brothers engaged in a brutal eight-year war, with Humayun losing and retaking Kabul twice, mirroring his father's struggles with the city of Samarkand. Humayun had finally learned the hard lesson of his treacherous brothers. His half-brother, Askari, was captured during the Battle of Kandahar and kept in chains as Humayun dragged him along on his travels. Eventually, he sent Askari to make pilgrimage to Mecca. This was the Mughal way of getting rid of someone they did not want to kill. However, Askari died along the way near Damascus. Kamran lost the war against Humayun and fled to India in 1552. There, he sought help from Islam Shah, son of the infamous Shur Shah Suri. This was an especially treacherous move considering the hostility between the Suri dynasty and the Mughal dynasty. Nonetheless, Islam Shah showed his disdain for Kamran by merely giving him a thousand rupees, a clear message that he would not offer any assistance. Kamran tried to escape India, but was captured in the Punjab and returned to Humayun. Enraged by Kamran's constant betrayals, Humayun ordered him blinded and sent him to Mecca. Kamran died in Mecca in 1557. Hindal, the only brother that had remained loyal to Humayun, died fighting for him in 1551. In the next episode, we will discuss Humayun's struggle to recapture his territory in India. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, Simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory. 
If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-12. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Led by Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's cousin, Muhammad ibn Qasim, Umayyad forces have begun an, an invasion of Sindh. Meanwhile, back in Iraq, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has ordered many of Muhallab's descendants arrested and tortured. And Qutayba ibn Muslim, the governor of Khurasan, is wrapping up his conquest of Bukhara in what is now modern-day Uzbekistan. And with that, let's get into the show. But before we get into the main part of the show, I want to talk a little bit about the Umayyad government administration. We've been talking a lot about the conflicts and the warfare and the politics and the conquests and stuff. And we need to talk a little bit about the administration, how the government of the Umayyad Khilafat was run. So before the war with Ibn Zubair, before the war with Ibn Zubair, the Umayyad government or the Umayyad Khilafat was very decentralized. The Umayyad Caliph had very little direct authority in the provinces. However, after Ibn Zubair, this began to change and the Umayyad government began to concentrate more power in Damascus where the Caliph resided. So before Ibn Zubair, before the conflict with Ibn Zubair, this is really just the Khilafats of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan and his son Yazid ibn Muawiyah, there was also Muawiyah II, but he didn't really last that long. But it was just those main two primarily, Muawiyah and his son Yazid. Now, during their reigns, the provincial governors, the governors of the various provinces of the Umayyad Khilafat, of the Muslim Empire, these guys were usually selected based on family, on connections, on interpersonal relationships. And the governors who ruled over these different provinces, they had to really work with and negotiate the local Ashraf in these local provinces on almost all administrative matters. It was very difficult for the governors to get anything done without the cooperation of the Ashraf. And remember, the Ashraf is plural of Sharif, which is really the heads of the various clans and tribes or the nobility, so, so to speak, of the different Arabs living in the Umayyad Khilafat at this time. 
So this gave the Ashraf, these Arab nobles, the nobility of the Umayyad Khilafat, it gave them considerable power. However, this backfired on the Umayyads when the Ashraf turned against them. They turned against them multiple times. They turned against the Umayyads when they called for Hussein ibn Ali to come to Kufa and take over. And, and they will back him. They turned, they turned against them then, even though they then went and turned against Hussein ibn Ali also. But then even after the Battle of Karbala, the Ashraf rebelled or turned against the Umayyads again when Ibn Zubair came to power. Many of the Ashraf, while some of them did support and maintain their loyalty to the Umayyads, many of them went over to Ibn Zubair. And once again, during the Peacock Rebellion, led by Ibn Ashath, which we discussed early in this season, this once again proved the futility of relying on the Ashraf when many of them rebelled and turned against the Umayyads yet again and joined the Peacock Army or joined Ibn Ashath's rebellion. So this was proof to the Umayyads that they could not really rely on the Ashraf as partners in governing their uh, empire, the Umayyad Empire, the Umayyad Khilafat. There was another reason why the Umayyads had to move away from this decentralized system that Muawiyah had and into a more central federal system where much of the power was concentrated in Damascus. And this was because many non-Arabs were starting to become Muslim. In the early days of the Umayyad Khilafat, there was a very clear distinction between Muslim and non-Muslim. It's very clear. Basically, all Muslims were Arabs and all non-Arabs were non-Muslim. Perhaps all is too strong of a word, but most Muslims were Arab and most non-Muslims were not Arab. With the exception of the Hejaz, it was a Muslim-Arab minority ruling over a non-Muslim, non-Arab majority in the early days of the Umayyad Khilafat. However, by the time that we are discussing now in 90 AH, 90 years after the Hijrah, roughly 80 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, by the time Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik is the caliph, this distinction between Muslim and non-Muslim is starting to blur. <laughs> 